This is a disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm not here with my co-host Lee. I'm Lee, and I'm not here with my co-host Peter. And I'm also not here with another co-host that you've heard from before, but we finally found his niche, Andy. Because, and Lee doesn't really know about this yet, but we've been kind of scheming behind the scenes for today's topic and for some other topics coming up in the future. We're going to do a little bit of a tie-in with this YouTube channel that both Lee and Andy have called Try All and Error, where they try yeah. different new food stuffs that people haven't tried. So I thought, uh, what better source of trying stuff that I don't want to do myself than one of the people from that channel? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I am going to be the guinea pig from here on in. I can't wait to hear your thoughts, and we'll get to that. <laughs> and obviously, Andy will be here through for the whole episode, but there is a specific... There's a specific try all Andy section that I have in my notes, so <laughs> I can't wait to get to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, just before we get started, the usual housekeeping. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. If you want to get sort of the full picture of what we've done, I recommend going back and starting at the beginning and listening to all the episodes because we don't necessarily do like inside jokes, but there's a lot of callbacks to things that we've talked about before. So I recommend just going back and listen to it all. Why not? What else do we have to do? It's, it's a Why pandemic. Not? Exactly. <laughs> If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is to tell a friend to listen. Uh, the next best thing you can do is, if you're not already, subscribe and leave a rating or review whenever you, wherever you listen. I think Apple Podcasts is still the best place to uh, to do that. You can also follow us on social medias at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. Also, we've got a patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod where you can get tons of free content. We have micro disasters coming out every two weeks and some other bonus content coming out and some more bonus content in the works. And then uh, that would be that would be great you also have access to live streams when we do major disasters like this one even though we're not streaming this one but most of them you have access to by now anybody that's ordered a shirt probably has a shirt so hopefully you're enjoying those if you guys have suggestions for any other merch ideas like coasters or switchblades i don't know what mm. do people buy <laughs> switchblades no, not switchblades yeah. okay <laughs> i was thinking more like a beer cozy or something that would be Oh, beer cozy. beer cozy. I like that one, especially coming into the summer now. Yep. Yeah. I guess we're kind of in the summer. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Anyway, if you have suggestions like that, feel free to get in touch and then we'll uh, we'll consider them and maybe put out some sweet new merch. Uh, one last thing before we get started. Lee recently told me about a band he came across called Crowhurst. Yeah, I did. It was a pretty cool story. Yeah. Yeah, it was a funny story. So um, I came across someone uh, by the name of Jay Gambit on social media of he friended me and I saw that we have a mutual friend, my best buddy, Mike H, who goes by the name Major Entertainer. He's a really funny comedian. So I sort of looked into this guy and saw he was in a bunch of bands, one band being this sort of atmospheric, weird doom metal band called Crowhurst. So I started messaging him. I was like, is that Crowhurst as in Donald Crowhurst? He said, yeah. I said, that's super cool. So uh, yeah, check out the band Crowhurst. Nice. And he had, heard, and he had actually heard our podcast just that episode, even though he said he didn't really listen to podcasts, but someone had mentioned, hey, you're in a band, Crowhurst. There's this podcast, did a two-parter right. on Don Donald Crowhurst. And that's the story of that. <laughs> I wonder if you're the first person in that band's history to get the name. It's pretty obscure. <laughs> I mean, I never would have gotten it if I hadn't done this podcast. Yeah. I feel like I know him well, but just because I got obsessed with him, there's no way that I would have like just known who Donald Crowhurst is. On to the disaster. Yes. And I'm kind of excited about this one, and which is reflected by the length of my notes. So we'll, we'll see how long this episode ends up being. But I'm going to start off with a brief sidebar about the history of video games. Okay. Starting with a <laughs> and I, sidebar. And I did, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I did manage to keep it brief, uh, I think. So 
Anyway, let's see. So Alan Turing was a British mathematician, cryptanalyst, and computer scientist. Uh, you've probably heard of him. <laughs> Keeps it brief and goes to World War II. Everything is World War II at this point. <laughs> I, I, tr- I really tried to condense it. I just wanted to give, like, context. Anyway. The Second World War is the hub of so much, uh, you know, discovery and, you know. Exactly. A lot of death. a lot of terrible things. Death and destruction, but also, you yeah. know, opportunity and... Podcast about disasters. World War II's gonna come up. Early in the Second World War, Allied forces were able to intercept German communications, but not really make any sense of them. So the Germans were encrypting their messages with the use of a military Enigma machine, which used a complex mechanism of rotors and keys to scramble a message. And there is a connection here to video games. The only way to unscramble them was to know the key or to break the code. And breaking the code manually was essentially impossible because there's a lot of history behind the Enigma machine that I'm not going to go into. But the point is, Alan Turing's work led to one of the first sort of proto-computers, which they called the bomb with an E. So bomb, E. The bomba. But pronounced, yeah. Right. So it helped the Allies decrypt German messages throughout the war and contributed to the ultimate victory over Allied forces. Mm. During the awkward silence after the backslapping in Champagne following the war, mm. someone probably looked at it and asked, can it play Pong? <laughs> what do we do with this thing? The answer was definitely no. And that's not right. just because Pong wasn't a thing yet, but it's because the bomb used to decipher the Enigma was just an electromagnetic machine with a series of automated rotors. It didn't actually, it wasn't really a computer. It didn't display any images didn't even have a monitor. It just did this one specific task. A lot of switches I'm, I'm, I'm picturing. Yeah. If you've ever seen uh, the movie Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. No. Mm-hmm. It's about that. And they actually have a, they have like a working uh, one of these machines. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if it was actually working, but it's a depiction of what the machine actually looked like. Sure. It's interesting. The idea of computer gaming wasn't lost on Turing because he co-developed a computer-based chess game with another programmer, but he didn't actually implement it because uh, I don't know why they didn't actually get to it, but he like had the theory behind a chess game. Mm-hmm. So as computer gained screens as output devices, programmers looked for ways to show off the brand new concept of graphics. And early on, this meant things like tic-tac-toe and checkers, sort of virtual games. Eventually, by the end of the 1950s, a game showed up called Tennis for Two. Mm. And that kind of busted onto the screens of oscilloscopes across academic labs throughout the country. Wow. So still, it wasn't really a computer as such with a monitor. It was more like you'd play it on an oscilloscope and you'd have this rudimentary controller with like a knob on it. Yeah, yeah. And you might have actually seen the picture. There's a picture that floats around the internet, which often gets labeled as the first ever recorded rage quit. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen that. No. Well, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) But there's a picture of like this one guy who's like super happy because he clearly won and the other guy just kind of like leaning back with his arms crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That would have been like as fast paced as Doom Eternal is now. Like, Oh, absolutely. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because you're going from like nothing to now controlling things on a screen. No precedent set. Even doing this research, like I can't put myself in the shoes of someone who's never conceived of a video game, right? Right. Like games? Oh, you mean like like checkers? As I mentioned, for the sake of ever finishing this episode, I'm going to yada yada a bit of video game history and skip ahead to probably the first title most of us recognize, which is Pong. Mm. And that was like a similar kind of concept, but it's essentially the first arcade game. And the basic premise is it's like a ping pong simulator but it was coin operated and started showing up in like restaurants and yeah and on an upcoming episode of mine yeah we're gonna hear all about it really yes awesome i'm i'm well into my notes so don't give too much away (laughs) we're gonna have some (laughs) if you want to yada yada anything atari atari related go right ahead we didn't plan but i did because there's a lot of it and i'm like this is not an atari podcast (laughs) No, but 
stay tuned. I am very happy that we opened the door on video games because it occupies our minds. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so Pong showed up in 1973. Spoiler. Yeah. So I kind of skipped over 20 years of development there. But before long, arcades that were traditionally lined with only pinball machines started making space for this new video based gaming experience. Yeah. And the trajectory of video games was altered eventually by... <laughs> Everyone saw the success of Pong and everybody kind of piled on. And before you knew it, there were like thousands of Pong clones. <laughs> so Clone. people were like, you know what? I'm kind of done with table tennis. Can we do something yeah. else? Is there <laughs> anything else they can do? Like yeah. So that that's actually what drove companies like Atari and Midway to diversify into combat, shooting, and racing games right. in the mid to late 70s. So the evolution of video games, they kind of have two important milestones for our story at least. The first one, in 1969, Jules Millman established what was probably the first mall arcade. Mm. So this was like an arcade inside a mall where there was no drinking, smoking, or eating. And it basically, it, it provided an environment where parents were comfortable just sending their kids to hang out. Okay. Like they'd go to the mall, kids would go to the arcade, and they'd do all their shopping because they knew that the kids weren't going to get in trouble there. Right. And that eventually led to the propagation of these arcades into malls all over the country. And then eventually just arcades generally started blowing up because as the kids got older and they could be more independent, they still wanted to be going to arcades. Mm. Right. So that's, that's one big important thing for our story. Which is funny because like, I think pinball machines, which came out much earlier, of course, were originally like seen as, you know, in a dim light, like existing in a den of iniquity and gambling and shit <laughs> <laughs> yep that's how i picture pinball <laughs> of course oh to this day yeah and that's why this you know establishing these kinds of family friendly or kid friendly arcades and malls was such a big milestone because mm -hmm. now it's a place where kids can just go be independent play video games and get that like i'm on my own and i'm doing something fun yeah and that kind of did a lot of work to establishing i think proto gamer culture essentially because oh, like that's yeah, like yeah, the yeah. thing they do getting it away from like a bunch of hoods gather around a pinball yeah. machine discussing the land the next caper yeah exactly yeah and i always picture the arcade in terminator 2 sure yeah that's a mall arcade right that's yeah. an arcade oh, in yeah. a mall <laughs> yeah hey i think i saw that kid he just went out of oof when he gets pushed out of the way yeah. right playing afterburner the second important milestone is throughout the 70s more and more people began developing games for mainframe and mini computers and that seeded what would become an industry around the objectively best way of playing video games, mm -hmm. the PC. <clears throat> what was that, Lee? Sorry? Did you have... No, you can spout your propaganda all day. <laughs> 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 to be fair, and obviously, like I said, I'm yada yada some stuff. Consoles popped up throughout the 70s, uh, and it sounds like Lee's going to talk about them. They don't really have a ton to do with what we're going to talk about, so I'm just going to forget about them for now. Yeah, stay tuned. The 80s ended up being a golden age for the arcade, and this is where a lot of the games you've heard of and saw, like I said, in Terminator 2 came from. So like Galaga, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Missile Command, Asteroids. Oh, so good. Well, I remember like my parents would go to this fitness club and sort of bring me and just like leave me in the, in the <laughs> sort of bar canteen yep. area. Because that's what you did with your kids back in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> Toss like, you some money. We'll see you later. Get yourself a drink. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they had a tabletop Galaga, like not a stand-up. It's the one you sit yep. down at. Yep. Oh yeah. They would just throw a bunch of quarters at me, and I would spend mm -hmm. my time unless some punk motherfucker decided to just sit there and have their drink and use it as Ugh. a literal table. I hate that. <laughs> this is in a fitness club. You said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, Different time. What, what are they having? A glass of water? A Gatorade? 
<laughs> that was not of concern to me at the time. What was no, concern no, no, of me no. was they were stealing my Galaga time. Gotcha. And I <laughs> swear right. they went home with two like red impressions on the back of their head. That's where I was staring at them so hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that basically sets the scene. So golden age through the 80s. Yeah. And like growing through the 70s. If I say the name John Romero, does that ring a bell? It does. Well, it would it would ring a bell for Andy, <laughs> maybe from reading the credits, but okay, good. So you really don't know anything, which is going to be super exciting. John Romero was just entering his tween years as the golden age of arcade was hitting. Unfortunately, as much as Romero loved video games, that's how much his stepfather found them a waste of time. Yeah. And I should mention a lot of this information that I'm talking about now and a few things that I pick out later on in the episode come from an amazing book the title of which I'll give at the end of the podcast because it might spoil a little bit of stuff Okay, for, for Lee in particular. I'll, I'll give that reference. It'll be in the show notes and I'll mention it at the end. But I'm going anyway. in blind. Unfortunately, as I said, as much as Romero loved video games, that's how much his stepfather hated them. Mm. And unfortunately for Romero, his drill sergeant stepdad preferred to teach lessons with his fists instead of his words. Mm. So as I mentioned in that book, it tells about one time where, you know, his stepdad caught Romero playing asteroids in a pizza joint and he like slammed him face first in the machine, dragged him home and then beat him until he had a black eye and swollen lip. So this guy Jesus Christ. did not have any chill when it came to video games. <laughs> or his own temper. <laughs> if your parents just pulled the plug and grounded you, count yourself lucky not to have had Romero's dad. God. Which is right. not cool. Oh, hopefully he's burning in hell right now. Continue. I, well, <laughs> I say all of that to illustrate that after this beating, Romero got instantly grounded for two weeks and that night snuck out to the arcade Immediately. <laughs> I mean, he's already in Dutch with his stupid father-in-law. Why mm -hmm. not? You know. But it's it. also clear that video games are like his life already. Right. right. We don't even know what they can be and there's life. In 1979, Romero and his friends discovered that computer science students at the local college would install games on the computers there and let them play for free. Oh. And this is kind of like, picture Stranger Things kind of vibe where you have this indiscriminate nerdhood. Like it right. didn't matter that these kids were 12 and 13 years old. They were interested in computer games. So they uh, were welcome. Right, right, right. Which is like, especially at this time, it's such a new thing. And it's so niche that anyone who's interested is just welcomed with open arms. Exactly. Which is pretty cool. They'll, they'll find each other. Also, when I say playing games, these were essentially text-based adventure games like Colossal Cave Adventure and Zork. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Zork. Yeah, Zork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've played Zork. I never played Colossal Cave, but, you know, go north. I played Return to Zork. That had graphics. I'm too drive to drunk. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Return to Zork. Yeah. Want some rye? <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's so what we good. were talking about in the chat with, I don't know if it's the patrons or just the general, but those text-based games where yeah. type in exactly what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Pick yeah, up yeah, the yeah, food. Yeah. Nope. Grab the food. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rage. So these were kind of like the perfect gateway drug, especially for someone like Romero. And I'll talk about that again in a second. But they were essentially, if you don't know, they were like computer-based Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And at the time, before computers, if you were the kind of nerd that would get obsessed with computer games, you were probably the kind of nerd that was playing D&D &D yeah. before learning about computers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, for people that have no idea what I'm talking about, which I imagine aren't too many of our listeners, but this was basically the equivalent of Fortnite in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> was D&D. Yeah. Like, if you were a teenage, if you were a nerdy teenager or preteen, you were playing D&D &D in the same way that everyone plays Fortnite now. I'm going to assume, like, a good segment of those people playing D&D &D were just, like, doing it as a stopgap, knowing that it was going to eventually be done on computers. Yeah, but again, it's it's such a 
interesting era to think about because how many people actually saw this coming? I remember my first experience with like a computer really was my dad brought home a quote unquote portable computer from work. Oh. And it was like the size of a large suitcase. Right. It had a two colored display, which was like bright orange and dimmer orange. <laughs> and like, it didn't do anything. You could type yeah. and maybe there's a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like in my, like never would I have ever imagined like, oh, one day you're going to be slaughtering hyper-realistic demons on this right. or something. Right, right. So, so for Romero, encountering a game like Colossal Cave Adventure was really a foundational experience. He'd aced games like Asteroids, obviously, mm. but he recognized that there was not that much to Asteroids that goes beyond reflexes and muscle memory. Yeah. But with text-based adventures, you're really immersed in a fantasy world, which is rich with lore and deep with story, and really seemed like design was law. Essentially, whatever you wanted to do, that's what you could do in these text-based games. Mm -hmm. So his friends liked playing the games, but Romero himself got obsessed with all aspects of them, and he spent his weekends at the lab. He would basically show up at like 7 a.m., absorbing lessons of any college student that would offer their time to help him teach how to program, because he actually wanted to make these games. Yeah. And essentially, he was just going through this drunk on the possibility of building entire worlds. He wasn't just happy playing the games, but he wanted to actually create them. Right. So he may have been a quick study, but his parents weren't as quick to get on board with the new obsession. Mm -hmm. And again, <laughs> as I mentioned, a lot of context, but it's it's building it up. It's building up the... <laughs> the I'd say his dad, or was it stepfather? I mean, he didn't... Yeah. It wasn't just that he wasn't going to get on board. It was that he was going to push him onto a yeah. board and then <laughs> yeah. pour water over his face. <laughs> oh, so the main reason was because when you spend every waking moment learning how to code video games, it doesn't really leave a lot of time for studying. And Romero yeah. is bright. But his A's turned into D's and his parents uttered a variation of a phrase that I guarantee any kid growing up in the 80s and 90s heard from like a million times from their parents, which is you'll never make money playing games. <laughs> or music or whatever. <laughs> Drawing pictures. So they actually said you'll never make any money making games. Mm. I always got playing games, which, okay, fair enough. But joke's on them because e-gamers are a thing now. Yeah. If I, but anyway, uh, so instead of like making games, his stepfather thought he should make business applications that people might actually use, mm. which is actually interesting from an entrepreneurial perspective because like designing to needs is valuable, but that's not necessarily how breakthroughs are made. Because right. if you think about it, like who needed Facebook, right? All right. And now we have Facebook. So it's like, oh, you should make business applications because that's what people need. Okay, but. So that means that everyone's going to be making business applications. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows they need video games yet. So within a week of becoming the resident computer lab troll, Romero had programmed his first text adventure game. Hmm. And again, when I say programmed, I mean, he wrote it on punch cards like this. We're talking like mainframe computers where you programmed on punch cards. And when I say wrote it on punch cards, I mean, hundreds of punch cards bound together that he would transport to and from the lab on his bicycle. Uh -huh. The kind of punch cards that went flying into the wind when he hit a bump. So... <laughs> That's around the time that he decided to move away from punch card based mainframes and onto something a bit more wieldy. And he landed on the Apple II computer with its fancy color graphics and programmer friendly environment. Mm. Uh, and that kind of launched him into developing games on the microcomputer. Okay. So I'm going to yada, yada, yada a bit more. <laughs> Over the following years, uh, Romero's skills grew and he began pumping out game after game. Like by the time he was 16, he was getting connections with fledgling publications that would eventually become gaming magazines and he would write games that would be published in them like all the time. Okay. And this also kind of fed into his ego and established him as like, it kind of gave him a little bit of like a rock star mentality. He would write letters to these magazines. A lot of times there were design competitions. He would send a letter like, 
when I win this month's competition, you can make the checkout to whatever. And then he would sign it, John Romero, ace programmer. It's like, (laughs) okay. But it is also, it's another kind of piece of the puzzle to keep in mind that he had this sort of cockiness from the beginning and it's going to show up again for better or worse. So he would just sort of sell these indie games to the back pages of um what's that magazine uh, pc gamer yeah pc gamer i think eventually PC gamer the one that i think he started off in was called it was an apple specific magazine called insider with a c oh because i guess apple cider insider that's stupid oh, that's so dumb, dumb. <laughs> but on top of that too like i think in Kyder. i don't even know if at this point they were sending out discs with the magazines yet I remember that. I was just, I was about to say, like, I remember when the magazines would, they'd be in plastic because they'd come with a floppy disk of freeware, or what do they call it? Freeware, shareware games? Shareware. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a bit too. Yeah. Like, I think at this point, even like published in a magazine meant that like the last few pages of the magazine was the code that you would write out and compile and then you'd play the game. Oh, okay. This is, uh, this is probably pre- floppy disk or pre anybody having that idea oh right sure 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 rockstar attitude aside romero was a solid programmer and it led to a few substantial gigs and ultimately it landed him at a software company called soft disk in a division that would work on special projects mm. and he got assigned to one of these projects called big blue disk that would send out and now we're talking about monthly disc magazines that mm. you know the discs would have software on them okay eventually he tapped into his passion for gaming and he established a pc game division called gamers edge and this is when john romero hired john carmack adrian carmack no relation and tom hall no relation they just have the name carmack. i mean that's not that common a name <laughs> no it's not but it's kind of funny yeah <laughs> It's also the reason that from now on, I'm going to say John Carmack's full name every time. Right. Okay. But I think here's a moment that uh, is like, so a few pieces might click together now for Lee, because on February 1st, 1991, John Romero, Tom Hall, and the Carmacks left Big Blue Disc and Soft Disc and formed Mm. id Software. Uh Aha. Originally, the id in id Software stood for in demand. Thankfully, they recognized how lame and circle jerky of an acronym that was. <laughs> they co-opted it to mean id as in Freud's concept of id and ego. Sure. And again, for so for Freud, id, Latin for it, is the part of your personality that contains the baser instincts, like needs, wants, and desires, usually aggressive. Right. The animal instincts. Their earliest game was called Commander Keen. <laughs> and I think that's kind of, that's the first time I encountered id, but I probably didn't know that it was id yet. Yeah, right. was I was playing Commander Keen, but I didn't make the connection between all of the other games that I'd grown up playing. Again, it's oh, those okay. shareware discs, you know. Exactly. Like my dad, my dad had a guy he worked with that was, you know, probably younger than him, and he said, "Oh, you've got a computer at home? Like, here's some discs with games for your kids." And it was Commander yeah. Keen, and you know, a whole bunch of things like that. So Commander Keen, I don't know, Lee, if you've played it, no, but it's like a side-scrolly, kind of like a Mario clone, sort of. Okay. But that's not really why it's known for blowing the doors off the gaming industry. It was kind of like their starting point. Right. They loosened the hinges with their second game, which was released in 90, 1992, and that was Wolfenstein 3D. Uh-huh. It's a bit of a misnomer to call it the first ever first-person shooter game, because the origins go back to like 1970s with games like Maze War and uh, Space Sim. Sure. Uh, but it did revolutionize the genre, because it was like the first one that ran smoothly, had smooth 3D graphics, and was ultra violent right like the other ones maze maze war you're like in a little tank and you're kind of like blowing things up into little polygons 
Now you're actually murdering Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing blood. So then a year, year and a half later, which always kind of blows my mind, a year and a half later on December 10th, 1993, id Software released probably the best game of all time. Definitely the one that had, without exaggeration, shaped the trajectory of my entire life. <laughs> uh, Doom. <laughs> yeah. So Doom comes out December 10th, 1993. If for some reason you don't know, you're a space marine fighting through a demon invasion of a colonized future Mars. This is actually the game that introduced a lot of people to the idea of shareware. The gaming discs had existed for a long time, but I think this is one of the first times that it was really leveraged to its maximum potential. So they basically distributed the first episode, which was nine levels for free on a disc. And then once you beat that episode, you get a message with a phone number to call to order the full game. And approximately 20 million people played the shareware version within the first two years of its release. And it's also probably the reason that, I don't don't know about you guys, but for me, that like the first campaign of the first Doom game is probably the one that's drilled into my memory the most Uh because I had the shareware version for a long time and I would just play that over and over. And then eventually I got the full version, but it was almost like an afterthought at that point. Like I had played the first nine levels so many times at that point. For sure. Mm -hmm. Doom also introduced the world to the concept of multiplayer gameplay like in a big way. You could play the campaign, the single player campaign in co-op mode with two to four players. You also play Deathmatch and there's like tons of stories of Doom getting released and then dorm networks across the country just going Mm. down because everyone was playing multiplayer Doom and just clogging up the networks. (laughs) (laughs) Nerd alert. Basically, Doom had iconic gameplay, iconic design, iconic music, and it was really a turning point or at least like a giant milestone in video game history. You look at any game that came out before Doom and it's like, okay, that's that's cool. They're trying to figure it out. And then Doom comes out and everyone's like, oh, shit. Okay, this is video (laughs) games. (laughs) It's done like that. Doom 2 came out one year later. Yeah. For me, there was always a bigger gap there. But 1994, Doom 2. Doom 2. That's the one I played. Not really shocking that they made a sequel to their massively successful <clears throat> first game or right. first Doom, but essentially there's not much to say about it. More the same. Added, they added a weapon, they added demons and more varied environments because now they're on Earth. Yeah. The next game they came up with, and we're going to leave id Software in a second, but it's important to talk about uh, just like where they came from and then also John Romero's involvement in all this. Amazingly, to me at least, the next game came two years later. Okay. So Doom and Doom 2 both had 3D environments, but the elements were still 2D. And they're called sprites. So like when right. you're walking around, like if you walk around the character, it's always facing you until you get to a certain point. And then it cuts to like the back of the character. And that's like they can move through the 3D space, but they're still 2D. Yeah. In 1996, id Software released Quake, mm-hmm. which again, seems super early to me. 96. I, I always picture Quake as like a relatively modern game on the scale of gaming, but it's still two yeah, years yeah. after the after Doom 2, which is kind of yeah. crazy. So it had fully 3D environments and models. It had dynamic lighting that leveraged sort of the growing hardware acceleration industry like video cards. Had a similar setting, premise, but different setting. You had a protagonist who actually had just learned had as a name, Ranger, and was voiced by Trent Reznor. Yeah. <laughs> so he's sent through a portal to another dimension to fight an enemy known as Quake. And the style is kind of medieval and almost like Lovecraft sort of. Mm-hmm. The music was done by Nine Inch Nails. And another bit of trivia, in the game, you have these little ammo boxes for the nail gun. Yeah. And on the ammo box, it says N-I-N. Nin. It's like the Nine Inch Nails yeah. logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, when it comes to first-person shooters, id Software's influence can't be overstated. They essentially, if not invented, reinvented the genre and maybe invented the modern genre of first-person shooters. Sure. And until serious competitors came along, like the Unreal Engine, id led the way and everyone else followed, licensing their engines and trying to ape their games. Okay. So what 
was John Romero's role in all this. He designed half the levels in Commander Keen. He designed most of the first episode of Doom. And I feel like you can tell because in my mind, again, it might just be because that's the one that I've played the most, but I feel like the first episode stands apart from the others in like polish and those those it just feels a lot tighter than the other episodes of doom Mm -hmm. i didn't play it very much okay actually i only played it sort of within the last five years okay oh really doom one yeah Yeah. i played doom i'll get to it i'll explain that with my song choice but doom 2 was sort of my game oh i see uh, okay yeah Yeah, well that's that's fair i was gonna i thought you were gonna say that you weren't hadn't really played either of them but yeah i feel like maybe i i did play more of the second one, even though I definitely had them both when I was a kid. For me, it was like, it was Doom, the first Doom all the way. And then I don't think I, I never really played the second one the full way through until like three years ago. Right. I think the second one, there are a lot more levels or even episodes. So yeah, for sure. If you liked the game, but weren't in love with it, then you would probably give up and maybe not do a full playthrough. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I I feel like Doom one, I, I think, I think it has that, nostalgia being it is the original game yeah Mm -hmm. so i think it's also like time when it hit my i remember my dad brought home the shareware version from work like right at the right time in terms of my age and willingness to be obsessed with video games (laughs) i don't really have any can't really think of any memories of being 10 years old in front of my computer that aren't playing doom Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah like if my computer was (laughs) on i was playing doom and i think the other thing which you might touch on later but you know, I didn't yep. have, we didn't have any consoles. Like I didn't have a Nintendo or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at least not until later when I, I bought one myself, a 64. Yeah, exactly. But yep. so because the original games only were computer, you know, made for computers at that time, I feel there might yep. be a divide. You know, a lot of people that had computers at home and were playing the Doom and then the other mm-hmm. group, you know, Nintendos or Segas or Turbo Graphics yep. or whatever, and they wouldn't have even had that game available to them. Man, my my gaming experience is so much different from you guys, just because I'm a bit yeah. older, I think. Yeah, it could be. But I'll I'll get to that in a bit. I also didn't have a console until I I bought a Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> the week before they announced that they're discontinuing the Dreamcast, <laughs> I bought one for like whatever three hundred dollars or whatever they were two fifty. Yeah. And then they discontinued them and they go on sale for fifty bucks, and I'm like. This is why I play PC. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so he he designed the first episode of Doom. He designed about a quarter of the levels in Quake. More impressively, I think, he was responsible for basically all the tools that id Software used to build their games. Like, he built the level editors for Doom and Quake. He built the deathmatch launcher for Quake and all the installers for the games. So he didn't really have a hand in coding the engines. That was mostly John Carmack. But he worked heavily on the implementation, design, and running of the games. He, he knew it was up. On top of that, Romero, if you remember the Rockstar attitude I talked about before, he wasn't really modest in success. So at one point, he and John Carmack bought matching Ferrari Testarossas <laughs> with all their sweet doom cash. Basically like the nerd dream. <laughs> like they hit it big making video games and now they're tearing around in Ferraris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that's important to mention, if you remember, like I said, John Romero, the reason that he got into video games in the first place is the creative freedom that they would allow him. And just like this boundless, you know, you can do anything you want. Right. So at one point when John Carmack says, and this is a direct quote, story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not important. (laughs) You can imagine how that kind of outlook went over with the boy who spent his youth playing text-based adventure games and dreaming of the creative freedom. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so throughout the development of Quake, Romero clashed with Carmack all the time because Romero was pushing his ever increasingly ambitious vision for the game. Yeah. And he, there's a quote that, you know, from the book again that I mentioned that I'll mention. Uh, well, I can tell you now because we've talked about it, but the book is called Masters of Doom. Okay. It's a great book. I'm just scratching the surface. It goes into extensive detail of the relationship of Romero and Carmack and development of Doom and Quake and all that. Mm. So from that book, Romero once said, we need to innovate in design. It's the most important thing we do. Place that against stories like story in a porn movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, so Romero wanted to innovate. Carmack wanted things to ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving units. Yeah. Possibly because he's also historically known to always be moving on to the next thing. It made a lot of money licensing their engines. So like they would release Quake, which runs on a certain engine, yeah. which is kind of like the framework that the game runs on. And then other companies could license that and make video games using the same engine. And then it would get a percentage of sales or just like a one-time fee. So even though that made them a lot of money, Carmack kind of loathed that process because he didn't want to worry about holding hands for new developers. He just wanted to be working on the next engine. Right. Yeah, yeah. Eventually... In this whole Quake development, Carmack got his way. Romero fell into line, grumbling until they released Quake. And then shortly after they released Quake in June of 1996, Romero led id Software or was forced to resign, depending on Hmm. who you ask and what book you read. Romero felt strongly that a game like Doom wouldn't have been the massive success it was without a solid vision and amazing creative team, which Mm -hmm. is true, but also don't discount solid tech and competent project management, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. After leaving id Software, Romero took all that sweet yellow Ferrari demon and Nazi killing money and founded a new studio that he called Ion Storm. If you came here for the disaster, welcome to phase one. (laughs) Just like every tech company that started in the 90s, Ion Storm spent and spent and spent before they even got to work. Right, right, right. And they're not spending their own money either. They were spending the money of their publisher, IDOS, which had invested in this company. I think they gave them like a $26 million upfront yeah. uh, investment. So they moved into a 22,000 square foot or 2,000 square meter penthouse office that sat unrented for 10 years before they came across because of how hopelessly impractical it was <laughs> and mostly the price yeah they spent two million dollars just setting up their office in the ridiculously <laughs> lavish penthouse office in downtown uh, dallas this is like google before google was google yeah they had like a dormitory with a widescreen tv and beds and couches game rooms changing facilities and shower facilities because programmers just stay overnight and they live there or they had everything that like hard-working computer programmers would need plus a massive overhead skylight that meant nobody could see what was on their monitors and they had to like drape blankets over their cubicles so that it could actually work. (laughs) Oops. If you watch some of the old office tours on YouTube, you'll see programmers that had to like build forts around their cubicles just so that they could work inside them. (laughs) So really (laughs) poor choice of office location and they spent a ton of money on it. So great start. Uh, It's like social misfits being given the keys to the kingdom like they're just going nuts this is exactly it yeah Mm -hmm. and there's lots of parallels i'm sure well we've talked about some and we'll get to some others in it's like recording an album and phase one is spend a million dollars on yeah especially after you know you've been proven right yeah that's that's a hell of a motivator yeah can sometimes drive people slightly insane absolutely like (laughs) well i'll talk about a little bit there's just so much to talk about when it comes to this story and john romero but john romero was not anonymous people knew who he was they knew his role in games like doom and doom 2 and quake you know these games that happen to reshape gaming for the entire world sure that can go to someone's head absolutely Uh (laughs) and then ion storm's official slogan became design is law which is kind of a clear reflection of the chafing romero felt under the leadership of id software 
Yeah. Because, you know, it's software. Just ship it. Yeah. Ion Storm. Design is everything. Mm-hmm. Don't ship it till it's... Just to sprinkle in a little bit of uh, no pressure into the situation, IDOS, which was, again, the, the publisher, they treated all the new Ion Storm employees to champagne and limos on something they called the, quote, no excuses tour. <laughs> because, like, now you basically had a group of creative visionaries and PC game design pioneers that had all the money they had ever dreamed of. Yeah. So there's really no excuse not to succeed. Yeah. Like, what what <laughs> else it. do you... You have everything you need? Everything you need? Okay, cool. Yeah. Get started. Yeah, right. Yeah. Get to work. <laughs> no pressure. Results. <laughs> yeah. So from its inception, Ion Storm was painted as the land of the creatively free, escaping from the oppression of the stiffs at id Software. Yeah. Mike Wilson, one of the founding developers at Ion Storm, was actually quoted in that book saying, it is a technology-oriented company, whereas our main focus is to indulge our artistic sensibilities. Whenever you're dealing with a creative project... I hate to see the word indulge. <laughs> if you know what I mean, explore them, mm-hmm. acknowledge them, write them down, keep a notebook. Don't indulge. Not too much, no. <laughs> so during the development of Quake, Romero and the creative team spent a year sitting around and waiting for John Carmack to finish the engine. Okay. And I think that experience is kind of what, uh, it was kind of front and center in his mind when he was saying like, I don't want to do that again. I never want to sit on my ass and not be creative. Now it's got to be front and center. Yeah. So, what did they do with their new design as law attitude? So, even if you haven't heard about the game that we're talking about today, <laughs> you may have heard about Ion Storm in the context of one of the greatest games ever released. Oh. And I'm not being facetious. Like, actually, in 2000, Ion Storm released a game called Deus Ex to oh. universal acclaim. Okay. It's gone down in history as one of the best games ever made with a deep story, compelling characters, fully fleshed out vision of a dystopian future involving like humans enhanced by implants and nanotechnology. I remember playing it and being obsessed with it. And it is like one of the best games I've ever played. Okay. Which was great news for Ion Storm. (laughs) Or, well, okay, specifically, it was great news for Warren Spector who was at the Austin branch that had nothing to do with the headquarters in Dallas. So while Deus Ex was being developed and released in one of the most amazing games ever made, (laughs) John Romero launched himself into a brand new project that he hoped would encompass the massive vision he felt was being smothered in software, and he called it Daikatana, or in English, Big Sword. Wow, that sounds really cool. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of like... There's a lot of really cool about this in like a very 90s way. (laughs) All right. So John Romero envisioned Daikatan as a big, sprawling game that involved time travel to multiple points in history, including ancient Greece and medieval Norway. And we'll hear more about that from Andy because he's going to he's going to give us like a full breakdown of the plot. So I'm going to save that for (laughs) save that for him. It was announced in 1997 and they didn't really shy away from John Romero's very public rock star status in building a ton of initial hype for the game. Uh Uh-huh. Because, like, this is the guy that made Doom. Remember Doom, the game that reinvented first-person shooters? Yeah. So it used the Quake engine, and it would feature tons of weapons and monsters, all unique to the various time periods that you have to travel to in the game. Right. And on top of that, you'd have the help of two badass sidekicks. Oh, good. Which... I, I look forward to Andy telling us about the two badass sidekicks. <laughs> Anyone remember artificial intelligence in the 90s? It was awesome. It wasn't fantastic. In November 1996, again for context, Ion Storm was founded. Right. In early 1997, they announced Daikatana and that they'll use the latest and greatest Quake engine, which again, might have made things a little bit awkward because Romero didn't really shy away from trash talking his former employer, including uh-huh. one event where... John Carmack posted in a public forum about an event, like basically somebody backed a pickup truck into his Ferrari and like scraped up the side and he just managed to walk, see them like drive out of the parking lot, but he couldn't figure out who it was. So he was like, Uh if anybody sees this guy, let me know. 
And then Romero just slides into this forum and is like, karma. That's all he says. <laughs> so, and that wow. kind of, yeah, that kind of back and forth went on throughout development with id and ion storm employees fighting online constantly <laughs> which i imagine karma bitch <laughs> can i use your engine exactly right because they're using their engine so like right. and who's going to support this engine that they created it's software the people yeah. that you're bitching at all the time <laughs> uh and he didn't limit it to online he would also do this stuff in the press publicly so sowing a lot of animosity with cool. his former employer and supplier of the engine <laughs> just a charming man and then in December 1997, id Software releases Quake 2 with a shiny new and much more versatile engine. And really, if you've played the original Quake and Quake 2, Quake 2 is clearly a leap beyond the original Quake. Okay. Like you've got colored lighting and it's just much more refined, you can tell. Okay. The team at Ion Storm thought so too. Mm. So they decided to incorporate it into the game. And that's a pretty easy thing to say, but it's harder to conceptualize. So I thought I'd put it in the context of music recording, because that's something that we've all done together, or the three of us have done together, yeah. at least. It's kind of like you spend a year right. recording an album, mm -hmm. and then you get to the end of that year and decide that you've been playing the wrong instruments and you should change the key of every song. <laughs> and by wrong instrument, I don't just mean like I've been playing the wrong guitar, like I've been playing the guitar and I should play the tuba kind of thing ah okay <laughs> so we're starting from scratch exactly so that's what ion storm is doing with daikatana and this engine incorporation or engine switch really yeah they scrapped everything they'd done pretty, pretty much. much like they i think they could keep some of it but like you keep you keep bits and pieces but by and large you're just starting over jesus i think they were able to from what i understand they were able to migrate some stuff over yeah. but it's still say, a huge but. setback a lot of it was back to the drawing board. Wow. For sure. While this shuffle is going on, advertising for the game is going ahead at full steam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interestingly, and I use the term interesting here in like the, this is a stupid idea way. Right. The marketing focused on the people making the game instead of the game itself. I don't know if any of it actually used the word Daikatana, but there's one ad that I remember in particular from my own experience of yeah. reading these PC gamer magazines as a kid. And that's this big bright red poster that's made in the style of the box art for Daikatana. Uh -huh. And all it says in the center in like black letters is John Romero's about to make you his bitch, <laughs> which as a kid growing up, like I, I literally grew up playing doom and quake and I had never heard the name John Romero. Maybe I'd seen it uh -huh. in the credits, but it meant nothing to me. And now this big red poster is yelling at me telling me he's gonna make me his bitch <laughs> at this point i knew that daikatana was a thing but i didn't know he was the one behind it who the fuck is john romero <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then on top of that a lot of the coverage that talks about this poster like in in the book masters of doom and stuff they, they focus on what a bad idea it was to have a poster that says john romero is about to make you his bitch yeah what they kind of gloss over is that if you like look down at the bottom of the poster just says suck it down <laughs> Like a catchphrase, I guess. I think that was a catchphrase that... What does that mean? I think someone at Ion Storm yeah. copyrighted that catchphrase or something. There's a line... I'll, I'll touch on that actually later. Okay, fair enough. But it, it, it wouldn't have made sense... It wouldn't have made sense to see it on a poster without having a chance to play the game. And even then, even then, it doesn't make sense within the game. <laughs> Good to know. So yeah, so now like not only was this poster super hostile, but now it's also gross. And I don't really want to know what it's about right <laughs> in subsequent interviews obviously romero has said that he regrets the poster shocking no way yeah <laughs> because it tarnished the game's reputation before it even came out which again i can tell you from personal experience it absolutely did because i didn't know who john uh, romero was but because of that poster i found out who he was 
and that he was working on Daikatana. And now every time I thought about Daikatana, I thought about this aggressive and disgusting poster. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. And something tells me he wouldn't have regretted it so much if the game was a huge success. Yeah. Like maybe if he actually did make us his bitch, but <laughs> he, did, <laughs> yeah. he did not. See, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> so in June 1998, Ion Storm released Dominion Storm Over Gift 3, a game that was in development since 1995. And hmm. it won... Computer Gaming World's Coaster of the Year Award when it came out. <laughs> because, kids, when when games came out, they used to come out on CD-ROMs that you would buy from a store in a box. And if you didn't What's like that? it, What's that? What's then you'd that? use it as a coaster. So, Oh, okay, okay. There you go. So Dominion Storm over Gift 3 was supposed to be a quick win for Ion Storm that they would blast out and make a profit. And instead, it got two-star reviews and sold just as poorly. So, oh, no pressure on Daikatana. The- the writing is really on the wall at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, massive egos and nothing to back it up. Exactly. The end of 1998 came and went, and I should mention that the original release was targeted for 1998, mm. and now they were looking at early 1999. Mm. And for context, id Software took the game industry from Doom 2 to Quake in two years. Mm. And this is a time when game development is like, it's going ahead, right? Yeah. Great train. And Daikatana's looking like it'll be a year behind schedule using a modified engine that's three years old at this point. <laughs> So not, not looking great. No, out of date. Also wouldn't be a creative disaster if it wasn't hemorrhaging money. So from an article in the Dallas Observer published in early 1999, it said that Ion Storm had burned through the 26 million startup that they got from IDOS. And also they were burning through by December, 1988, they were burning through roughly $900,000 a month. <laughs> like I said, Ion Storm weren't in this on their own. IDOS is getting a little bit nervous uh, and uh, we'll see, we'll see what they do about that. on top of that if you're a young hotshot programmer that came to work for the god among men responsible for doom and quake (laughs) you can imagine the trajectory that daikatana was taking to be not particularly encouraging Mm -hmm. add to that that in a lot of the cases this was a lot of people's first job like these were essentially like you'd have an office of hotshot programmers that were like young john romero's that didn't really have too many official credits to their name so now they're coming on board thinking like oh sweet i'm gonna make a game with john romero it's gonna get released and this is gonna be like a huge line on my resume right but the longer you spend working on it without coming out the harder it'll be to actually get hired because your resume is going to say Daikatana 1996 to question mark. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what have you actually done? Right. 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 So as you can imagine, soon enough, Ion Storm was leaking talent about as quickly as it was leaking money. Mm. In November, 1998, a core group of eight artists and programmers jumped ship without any prior announcement. And that was kind of a turning point signaling to the public that all was not well at the Holy grail of a gaming studio. Because, you know, yeah. they can spin it however they want, but if you lose a huge core portion of your development team, it's like, oh, there's there's no way to spin that. <laughs> it speaks for itself, really. Even with all of this shit hitting the fan, the company remained outwardly optimistic. In the same Dallas Observer article, Todd Porter, who was one of the developers working at Ion Storm, predicted that Daikatana would ship 2.5 million copies. Oh, yeah, at least. Yeah. Which is yeah. probably not entirely coincidental because if you did the math, 2.5 million copies is about what they would need to make to return IDOS's investment and start making a profit. <laughs> so it's good news. Yeah. Additionally, it's, it's kind of surprising to anybody that is familiar with their business plan that they released in 1996 because they predicted sales of just under 200,000 units mm. and a development time of about a year and a half. A little bit <laughs> over on the uh, expected return and a little bit way over on the development yeah. time. 
Just a little. I think now we're getting to three years behind schedule. The mass exodus and mounting time crunch led to the hiring of staff to fill gaps, obviously, including... Does the name Stevie Case mean anything to you? Nope. Sidebar about my 90s nerd crush. (laughs) Stevanna, quote, Stevie Case is best known as a competitive Quake player under the name Kill Creek. Mm. And she was named after an indie rock band from Kansas. I didn't know that, but I guess there's a band called Kill Creek. Okay. So she actually played professionally in a clan called Impulse 9, which was the Quake cheat code for all the weapons, but it was like a clan name. Okay. She famously actually beat John Romero in a Quake deathmatch in 1997, which mm. propelled her into nerd stardom. Like she got sponsors <laughs> and she was even featured in a Rolling Stone article that talked about the deathmatch. Okay. Eventually she joined the Cyber Athlete <laughs> Professional League or CPL as their first ever signed professional gamer, which was also super cool. Mm. In the wake of the mass exodus at Ion Storm, she was hired in November 1998 as a game tester and eventually transitioned into a level designer. She also dyed her hair, lost weight, got implants, and was eventually featured in a Playboy nude photo shoot. Okay. This is a time in PC gaming where, yeah, like, you know, you have a lot of clout within the nerd culture, but it's also spilling over into popular culture. Well, yeah, if it's in Rolling Stone, I mean... Well, yeah, and, and right now, like... The video game industry is kind of its own thing, and you, it's almost like you assume that it's there doing its own thing. There's not really that much glamour. It's just like another job you can choose. Yeah. But at the time, you're still coming from a point of basement nerds building these companies from scratch and releasing games like Doom, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's you know exciting for publications like Rolling Stone and Playboy. In the article that went along with those pictures, which is really the only reason anyone ever buys Playboy is for the articles. Yeah, interesting articles about your hi-fi. Yep. So Stevie said... Quote, making the leap to games helped me to realize that the only way to be truly happy is to live by your own rules, not limited by outside expectations. Which sounds like she's the right fit at Ion Storm Mm -hmm. with her mentality and fundamental misunderstanding of how creative projects actually gets finished. (laughs) Didn't really help the project along too much. No, I guess not. So around March 1999, Eidos is getting real sick of Ion Storm's bullshit. Uh The 17-month game that was supposed to blow everyone's minds and turn a quick profit was now coming up on two years behind schedule and people were exiting the project about as fast as money was exiting Eidos's wallet. Uh So Eidos does what they should have done maybe in the first place and they send their publishing director to stand over John Romero's shoulder and tap his foot insistently. <laughs> game done yet? Is game done yet? Yeah, that's cool. You hungry? You want to have lunch? What about the game? Game done yet? I feel like maybe that's something that should have happened in the first place. Maybe yeah. not like that micromanagey, but uh, have a guy there. Some form of <laughs> supervision? Eidos is a British company. So like they sent someone over from like London. Oh, okay. So like be in the same country at least. <laughs> Yeah, okay. (laughs) Finally, after all of this, in April 2000, Daikatana went gold. In game development, that means that the game got done. Okay. (laughs) Right before I handed over to Andy, I thought I'd do a quick context quiz because we've covered a lot of years. When did Quake 2 come out? Oh, is it a quiz? Yeah. Oh, did you say uh, 97? Yeah, Quake 2 is 97. Okay. When did Half-Life come out? Oh, I don't know. 98. Yep, 1998. Half-Life. There you go. Remember Half-Life? The game that revolutionized games in the same way that Doom revolutionized games? Quite so. 1998. Mm-hmm. Okay. When did Unreal come out? You remember Unreal? That was like another sort of revolutionary engine. I've heard of it. For a long time, Unreal was like the competitor for id engines. So it came out in 1998. Right. Daikatana came out in 2000. I've heard of the... Un- the uh, does Half-Life use the Unreal engine? Half-Life actually, interestingly, uh, I mentioned this later, but Half-Life uses the original Quake engine. Oh, So okay. maybe if Ion Storm had stuck with that. And then lastly, when did Quake 3 Arena come out? I don't know. 1999. Okay. So keeping in mind that Daikatana is a game whose development spanned the release of four (laughs) iconic games, one of which was truly groundbreaking in its storytelling and use of the Quake engine, Half-Life. Yeah. 
I'm going to hand it off to try all Andy to tell us about Daikatana and his experience. <laughs> Andy, right. how good is this game? <laughs> On a scale of awesome to amazingly awesome, go. It must be. It's probably one of the worst video game experiences I've ever had. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, oh. And that's including, you know, those short nostalgia trips where you go and play in like an 8-bit Nintendo game because you think it's going to be fun and you give yep. up after 10 minutes because it actually yep. looks like shit. Yeah. Okay. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, but at least it has the yeah. nostalgia yeah. factor. Yeah. You know, one other game, before I go yep. into my deep dive, one other game I would say that among those, that series, it wasn't a PC game, but oh, yeah. GoldenEye for Nintendo 64 came out in, two, in, uh, in 1997 as well. Yeah. And if you think about it, there was a perfect example of a first-person shooter, you know, yeah. on a console and only on one console developed by a completely unrelated company using its own yeah, engine, yeah. as far as I'm con- as far as I know, rare. That was ama- you know, that was the, one of the most popular games yeah. of that era and probably yeah. still right. today. Yeah. And the funny thing was I couldn't help but think while I was playing Daikaten, and I did play the whole game. I appreciate um, that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't help but think back to games like GoldenEye, which I, uh, you know, I bought myself a Nintendo 64 in high school and was playing yeah. the shit out of that. Yeah. Um, and even though the graphics were that same kind of style of like very blocky characters, very like yeah. not rounded, yeah. everything was kind of square, had angles. Um, it still, I think, it definitely played better and certainly looks maybe a little maybe not quite as good but it, it certainly plays better and right. the ai aspect like peter mentioned there's these yep. two sidekicks that you take throughout the daikatana game yep. you know in some of those james bond uh, levels you have to take um natalia i think it is the girl that you right. have to you know the bond girl of the game of the movie in the game that you have yep. to kind of escort her through certain levels and mm-hmm. it was just like it was a cinch compared to this game <laughs> There are so many moments in this game where these two sidekicks get stuck on, you know, they can't climb the ladder or they can't get out of the water because they can swim in the game. They can't get back to the surface or um, they get, you know, just stuck in a kind of a clipping situation where the door is opening and shutting and they can't get through the doorway. And unless you get them all the way to the end of of a section of a level or to the end of the full level... Mm -hmm you can't proceed of course oh my god so there's a lot of saving and reloading and trying yeah. sections over again yeah. to the point yeah. where i was basically saving the game you know every 5 minutes just so i wouldn't have to repeat sections and i think one yeah. thing that i forgot to mention i think so you played like the patch the, there's a, the, the, the there's yeah. a fan patch that came out for the game right. in like i don't know the mid 2000s or something but in the original version of the game, there were limited save points. So like, you couldn't save whenever you wanted. Right. <laughs> there was like set save points. <laughs> right. So let me let me give you my first... I'll start at the beginning. So the game is actually actually fairly long. And it, okay. it, the whole time, for the first few days I was playing, I was taking on little chunks at a time thinking like, yeah. this is really shit. <laughs> and there was one little point I'll get to in a few minutes where it actually... I got interested in it. Okay. And then that slowly dropped off. So... <laughs> The game starts. <laughs> the game starts, and you're this guy named Hiro, H I R O, and you, it's in Japan and kind of a cyberpunk kind of future yeah. Japan. Okay. Yeah. And the game, the game basically starts with a ten minute or more cutscene where you can't play. You don't. You're not doing anything. It's like a mini movie. Ugh. 
and you you run a dojo, I guess, and you're like you know a sword sword master and maybe karate kind right. of instructor. Yeah. And this old man comes to you and he tells you this long prophecy of how he's his daughter's been kidnapped by this guy named Mishima, who is okay. who is basically this kind of despot that's taken mm-hmm. over much of the world. He's asking you as dying wish, as people come to kind of assassinate him, as please go and rescue my daughter. And mm-hmm. the whole point is that this sword was made several, you know, in the feudal Japan kind of period where the Dai Katana, which is meant to be just a big, a really, really big katana mm-hmm. in right. a sword. Yeah. It had kind of magical properties that at the time, you know, if you had this thing, you could control humanity. You can control the world mm-hmm. with this. It has so much magic yeah. made into the sword kind of like a lord of the rings idea like the ring right the ring <laughs> right. you can control right. men well it's the same idea yeah. so much so that there's a there's part in this first very first cut scene where it says you know the 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 people that were fighting for the the good side yeah. eventually were able to capture the sword and they threw it in a volcano uh-huh just, ah. just like i'm like this is a lord it's a lord of the rings ripoff right out of the gates anyway creative freedom man <laughs> yeah well i guess so it doesn't really stay it sounds like, that. like the kind of thing that a guy who would put an ad in a magazine that said i'm gonna make you your bitch <laughs> would do like oh i'll put a 10 minute cutscene at the beginning of the game because they'll watch it i mean why wouldn't they? that's why right. i play video games it's for the passive cutscenes. <laughs> exactly at the very very beginning well the thing is that this cutscene, it the characters i should say like they're kind of, as I was saying, they're blocky and kind of angular. Yeah. And their mouths don't move. This is like, I guess, before they could get that far into the graphic, you know, graphics where the mouths and faces would move. And so their eyes are permanently, you know, permanently, their faces are permanently in one look. Mm-hmm. And when they're, when they're talking to you, or they're talking, among, not to you, to, to each the other characters, their heads just kind of bob the way you, you know, you try and talk like up and down. <laughs> Food for thought. Yeah. Half-Life 1998. <laughs> and there you had like moving jaws and eyes and stuff. So anyway, yeah, true, carry true, on. True. <laughs> Is there? Well, I was wondering yeah. about that actually. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. I think there's very basic Perfect like example. mouth moving and stuff. Right. But yeah. So there's no mouth moving. It's almost like a puppet, you know, that doesn't like with a pasted on yep. face where you're just going to make it kind of nod to oh say like, hello, boys and girls. And it's, you're just shaking your wrist kind of to make <laughs> like his a head bob puppet. around. Yeah, <laughs> Casey and Finnegan. So this is the t- first ten minutes. So you go and you're supposed to go rescue this this girl, and you're supposed to get the this try and get the sword back. Yep. You end up in this Mishima's like headquarters, and honestly, the first mission of the game is this cyberpunk Japan. But all you really get to do is walk around in these swamps for the first little while okay. before you finally find a way into the the Mishima headquarters. Right, and that first level or a couple of levels where you're out in these swamps the only enemies you're fighting are mosquitoes <laughs> venomous frogs that you okay. can barely see because all of the map is green oh god <laughs> and like one one tone of green yeah and then occasionally there's kind of like these crocodile type creatures okay so you're taking these things down eventually you get closer and closer to the base and there's you know turrets and you know, little drone kind of helicopter things shooting at you, but yeah. uh-huh. it's it's a chore. And I, I can imagine that anyone playing this game at the time right. was like, I just blew 80 bucks on this or whatever it cost, yeah, right. you know, and thinking like, yeah, this yeah, is right. the shittiest game. Like you think back to Doom, the original Doom would have come out uh, seven or eight years before this. Yeah. And yeah. right out of the gates, like the, you, this game starts and you're, you've got yeah. a gun and you're taking down, you know, demons that are coming yeah. at you from all angles. This right. is the most boring yeah. It's the most boring start to a game. It's not fun at all. You finally get into this 
building and then it's you're you're actually realize okay there's enemies that are you know people like soldiers and kind of security of this thing right and it's so easy to kill them there's no challenge so you go <laughs> yeah. from being bothered by these bugs and lizards and stuff yeah. to enemies that are like terrible ai have right. barely any hit points or whatever you know like you a couple of shots and they're dead yeah. immediately and there's there's just not enough of them quick question just for context because yeah. i know that like the three of us have spent like the last three months being hyper vigilant, playing video games, trying to beat Doom mm -hmm. Eternal on Nightmare. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Are you thinking about it in the context of like trying to beat Icon of Sin in Doom Eternal versus <laughs> Daikatana or in the context of games in like 2000? I'm thinking of in games at the time. Again, like I draw the line to, to Goldeneye, you know, just like <laughs> I, I died a lot of times in that game, on yeah, the, especially enough. on the harder difficulties. But in this game, I, for Daikatana, I yeah. just took the normal, like, medium right. difficulty yep. to yep. try and i didn't want to make it too easy and no. i didn't yeah. i didn't want to play yeah. it for longer than i had to to be honest <laughs> so uh <laughs> so but you know it's just i probably died from enemies maybe half a dozen times the entire game and it was the things that were really killing me were like environmental Ugh. things like i blew myself up or i got caught in a laser trap i didn't know that was going to happen or something I other stupid stuff like this that. so <laughs> you finally get through this and it feels like it never is going to end this this first mission or the first episode right. of being in this headquarters. Yeah. And eventually you rescue yeah. the first sidekick. Okay. Okay. He's being trapped in a in a like a prison within yeah. the headquarters. Yeah. And his name yeah. is Superfly Johnson. <laughs> okay. No, it's not. It really? is it is. It is. <laughs> so you've got Hero Hero and Superfly now. Yeah. So he follows you around and he can pick up a gun and there's supposed to be like commands, you know, like follow me, stay right. here, um, yeah. attack these guys yeah. or whatever. The one I was using the most throughout the game was stay here because <laughs> you, you don't need them. They stay don't, out of my they, way. They don't help you. They oh don't certainly get in the way of the fights and actually yeah. their fire can hurt you like their right. friendly fire style thing. So it's like no point. So you, you usually would, you know, I would usually like have them sit mm -hmm. and wait for me to clear out an area right. and then have them come with me. So that, so the other thing is that there's this v terrible voice acting all the way through. So okay. the guy that's playing hero, who's supposed to be a, you know, a Japanese man, yeah. his voice, the voice actor is like a white guy that just has, a normal like voice yeah with a bit yeah. of that a bit of that like action movie grit yeah, come yeah. on we've got yeah, to yeah. take this down <laughs> right. like you know that kind of thing the guy that plays superfly is is a is an african-american voice actor mm. yeah so at least they didn't shit the bed on that but then when right. you get to the the second ai character you rescue it's supposed to be yeah. a japanese woman okay and mm -hmm. they've got for her a um like a white woman doing yeah. like a jap like a heavy heavy japanese accent like oh, no. English, no. speaking in English, but with, you know what I mean? Like the, oh, I don't even want to do it because no, I know exactly. Right. We be, can all picture the accent. It's inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. And it's just yeah. <laughs> all the way through the game, these two idiots are just talking to you. And, and if you go too close to them, they'll say something like, hey, watch it. Or like, <laughs> or that's going to cost you later. Like, what? That didn't it's get just annoying. The Fuck stupidest you. dialogue. Get out of here. And, um, <laughs> Anyways, you, you finally, so with Superfly's help, quote unquote, rescue Mikiko from this prison. 
then the two of them help you finally track down the sword, which is right. also in its own prison of some kind, where it's like being held in like, you know, in this chamber. And anyway, right. Mm. This prompts Mishima to come out, mm-hmm. and he's in full samurai outfit. Okay. Here's the first twist of the game. He has a second Dai Katana, and he reveals what? that he <laughs> took the original Dai Katana, mm-hmm. went back in time to feudal Japan. <laughs> Got the original Daikatana, came back, yeah. and then worked through the the centuries. And over the centuries, he's been able to time travel with this thing, and that's how he's cr- taken like world domination. Huh. Okay. Okay. So now yeah. there's you each have one of these swords, and he has this power to send you back in time. So it's like hmm. a f- the first big twist of the game is that you're going to be there's two swords, and he's has the power to send you back in time. Okay. Okay. So and it sounds like it's like it's back to the future style time travel where you can change things in the past and they affect you can the change things and they okay. affect right. the future exactly. Yeah. Now I should say that at one point in this big complex in the first mission where you're fighting through Mishima's headquarters, mm-hmm. you're in like you're in a morgue and there's okay. these rooms you go through and there's coffins being going on conveyor belts and eventually you get further further into it. Yeah. And Superfly comes in and says, what's going on in here? You know, like, and then you look in and he's like, is that human meat? Whoa, they're making human hamburgers. And there's this like unexplored, <laughs> completely unexplored <laughs> plot line where not only does Mishima have control of the entire world, yeah. he's taking cadavers and turning it into meat. Nice. It's just the weirdest. Sort of green uh, side plot. That would be such an amazing, like... What 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 makes you say that, Superfly? There's no evidence of that here. <laughs> yeah. So weird. Oh anyway, so the first the first time you get thrown back in time, this is where I said it was like the high the the one high point of the game. Yeah, yeah. You're in ancient Greece. Cool. And it's kind of like it's not really ancient Greece. It's more like a, a mythological ancient Greece with okay. the gods are real and. So the reason I liked it was because, first of all, it goes from this drab, like dark green and brown and gray color scheme of the um, Mm -hmm. headquarters to finally you're like outside in Greece with blue skies. And so it was actually like, it was literally. (laughs) Oh, a change of pace. (laughs) A virtual breath of fresh air. Yeah. So you're going around in these basic, you know, going through these Greek temples and, and palaces and stuff. At first you're stranded, but eventually you find the two. AI characters again they they've been sent back with you. Mm-hmm. And the cool one cool thing I to get to the game's credit I guess is that in each of the time periods that you go through you get a different set of weapons. Okay. So the only okay. weapon that continues is that you keep the sword the whole time. Right. Yeah, yeah. But in the yeah. in the first mission I didn't explain that but basically you have an assortment of futuristic guns. Yeah. You know yeah. that you could imagine in like a cyberpunk kind of world. In the ancient yeah. Greece right. world you get you get like a discus Okay. Like a kind of a, imagine like an Olympics, the original yeah, right. Olympics discus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it comes back to you like a boomerang. So that was kind of cool. Oh, nice. You get um, a trident from Zeus at one point. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, cool. Um, you get a scepter that has two heads of snakes on it, like a fork. And the oh, snakes cool. are alive. Yeah, yeah, right. And they shoot mm. venom, which was kind of cool. That, that's cool. <laughs> there might have been in a couple more. I can't remember. But anyway. So you go through the first, the ancient Greece thing, and then you fight Medusa at the end for some reason. And (laughs) just like the, all the main... (laughs) With her own snakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like the main character, or the main, uh, you know, the fodder enemies Mm -hmm. that you're fighting throughout the levels, all the soldiers Mm -hmm. and stuff. 
just like they were really easy to kill, we're, we're to a point where the game almost provided no challenge whatsoever. Right, yeah. Mm. The same is true for the bosses. So you get to Medusa. Yeah. Earlier in the game, actually, they give you a special sword or some kind of weapon that that's right. what you're supposed to use to kill her. Yeah. And it, you use it once and she's dead. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Like it's not, there's no, there's nothing to it, you know? And so like, is the, okay. is the mechanics behind the Daikatana sword cool? Like, is it a nope. useful weapon? Oh, okay. No, from what I could, <laughs> from the little I use it, cause you'd barely need to use it. Mm-hmm. Cause it ends up being the time travel stick more than it is yeah, right. a sword. Okay. The flex capacity. So like, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you press the mouse button, you know, that would normally be like shoot, you yeah. basically do like a swipe down yeah. or you kind of swipe across Okay. And then you can do a poke, but I I never got the understanding that if I moved my mouse yeah. or I was looking a certain way, yeah. it would do one of the three. It was just kind of like always the same cycle. You press the mouse button and you'll do one swipe down, one swipe across and one poke. Yeah. I mean, so, why, why would they spend a lot of time on the sword mechanics in a game named after the sword? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and why, you know, even thinking back, like if you're going to name it Die Katana, mm-hmm. why not just call it Sword of Power? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. the shadow sword or something. Yeah. Big sword. Really? <laughs> Big sword sounds like, oh, we're calling it that for now. We'll come up right. with a real exactly. name. Obviously. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the next the next episode. So you Big kill Medusa. Sword. You get flung back into time. Mm-hmm. You come out in medieval Norway. Okay. And this is kind of cool for you two guys <laughs> because the yep. game is set around plague time. So nice. like you're in this village uh-huh. and yeah. all the humans have been you know there's not many humans left because it's like a plague mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. that are still alive are like a zombie kind of enemy that they always come and get you but again there's no it's easy to kill nothing mm-hmm. no real challenge right. there are rats everywhere as an enemy okay. so the rats will oh. just come up and attack you and you have to they were kind of annoying because they were small just yeah. like in the first mission yeah. the frogs and stuff you have to really frogs, pinpoint yeah. them pick them off right. so plague rats and you go through these catacombs and you go down into this crypt and you finally come to this castle and you have to take down three wizards mm-hmm. and each wizard you kill gives you a new scepter. Okay. And those are part, those become your weapons. But again, in this mission, the weapon set reach changes again. Right. And the one I kept mm-hmm. using was a crossbow. <clears throat> they give you a crossbow. They give you like 200 bolts. Okay. And it takes down almost every enemy with like one shot. So why would I use <laughs> anything else? It's just not, right. there's no interest in the guns. And it sounds know? like yeah, yeah, what's yeah. extra frustrating is like, it's easy on normal difficulty and it seems like there's no incentive to play the game again. So you're nope. never going to get a challenge out nope. of it. Okay. Right. Nope. So finally you get to this, you meet this king and he, you kind of rescue him. Again, a bit of a, of a Lord of the Rings ripoff. The king has gone okay. mad. I can't remember Uh, the king's name, but I know in the two towers, I'm thinking of the movie more than the book, but it's probably the same. The the one king that goes mad and you eventually rescue him. And he then fights for, you know, he helps. He's the king of the horse. The riders of Rohan. Right. Right, right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's the same plot. The king's gone mad. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got some evil advisor that you have to kind of kill and then. No, those three, those three wizards are kind of his evil advisors. You have to kill them all. Right. And then he's okay. like, oh, wow, mm. I've opened my eyes. You've rescued my kingdom. Thank you. What can I do to repay you? Mm-hmm. And then he has some power to send you back in time to do another time jump. Okay. What happened so to the sword? Is, 
sword. <laughs> he, oh, well, he does it by, if you want to get into the nitty-gritty, oh, he recharges the Daikatana okay. using Norwegian medieval magic. Right, okay. Oh, well, that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so now you're in the next time jump, and you're in the year 2030. So this is Whoa. actually our near future. Yeah, and, 10 years from now. Yeah. And you're in San Francisco in okay. Alcatraz. You come out in Alcatraz for some reason. Right. And this yeah. is where the point okay. where, like, I was like, okay, I think I'm finally getting to the end of this game. You know, thank God. <laughs> but there, so you, you come out of the time jump and immediately there, you start talking to a prisoner. Okay. And again, one of these cut scenes that just goes on and on. And the cuts, the guy says, I actually had to write this down. He says, my name is Ratchet Cassetti. <laughs> Arson, porn, you name it, I've done it. Arson and porn. Porn? And you have an exchange with this guy, and then yep. he like tells you how to. He gives you some clues to how to escape Alcatraz, and then you right. never see him again. I, but okay. I'll never forget Ratchet Cassetti. <laughs> <laughs> a few questions Set fire to a bunch of Playboy magazines, I guess. So I, I guess we're just glossing over Alcatraz being a prison again. I guess. In yeah. Thirty. Well, this is, is re- one of the changes through time because. Uh, okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. Mishima's yeah. thing. Is that he, because yeah. well, he was going through, he's like, well, let's keep Alcatraz as a prison, I guess. Gotcha. Second thing, yeah. uh, I guess porn is going to be a crime in like nine years. So we better load up. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> There's a couple parts in this, in the Alcatraz sequence that are like funny. Mm-hmm. One is that the dialogue in this is, is terrible. Like it's terrible <laughs> just for that alone. So laughable. Okay. At one point, Hero, who's, you know, you're the guy you're playing. He says, yeah. we've got to get out of Alcatraz so we can give comeuppance to Mishima. Comeuppance. Give comeuppance to. <laughs> like, not threatening. You're not, nobody's uh, taking you seriously. Have these guys never like encountered anyone other than a fellow nerd? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Eventually you get to the laundry room of the prison where you can open one of the washing machines right. and inside there's like a secret bonus, you know, health thing. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go grab that. And then the machine turns on automatically, and then you start spinning around okay. inside it, okay, like in inside the washing machine, um, <laughs> okay. and then you end up losing the health that you just gained as a result. Annoying. So just like, what is this? <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that's in this game. Just like the most asinine, like <laughs> stupid little things that are in there for no reason. That seems like the kind of joke that like you might enjoy if they had earned it. Right. If they hadn't spent like the previous yeah, right. however many yeah. hours annoying you. <laughs> yeah. And the Alcatraz sequence was probably it was shorter, thankfully, yeah. but there was one part where the characters, the two AI characters, Superfly right. and Mikiko, they screwed me over so many times in this one section that I could not yeah. end the level. And every time you go to oh. to end the level, He'll yeah. say, Hero will say, I can't leave without my buddy Superfly. Oh, God. And it's just like, I, I'm i so close to smashing this computer. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you can't leave without your buddy Superfly? <laughs> uh, anyway, so I got through this part. You leave Alcatraz Island. You go to San Francisco City. You go to Mishima's mm-hmm. his head, his lab. It's not yeah. the same lab from the future, cyberpunk future. It's the 2030 one. Okay. Doesn't yeah. matter. You fight a whole bunch of guys. It's a pristine lab. It's, you know, like, yep. it's supposed to be, like, uh, wet labs and kind of very cool, like, tech. Yep. And then all of a yep. sudden, the rats are back. The plague rats are in one of the rooms, biting <laughs> okay. at you. Right. Crossing it's just, over. It's just dumb. It's just, why are these... It's, and then you go to another section, and there's two gorillas. 
and their brains are exposed. It's like they've okay. been, you know, sure. like their skull, the top of their skull oh, yeah, taken okay. off like a melon. Yeah, right. And you can see these gorillas' brains, and they start attacking right. you for some reason. Okay. And again, it's just, okay. it's just kind of like the, um, the Mishima hamburgers that are made out of humans. Right. That the gorillas, <laughs> yeah, like, it's this unexplored side plot of, like, doing right. experiments with, uh, with gorillas to make them super yeah. intelligent. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the weirdest <laughs> shit in this game. And then finally, finally, you track Mishima down to mm. a Navy base for some reason. Mm. And this yeah. is the last mm. mission of the game. Yeah. So I've got my Daikatana. I've got weapons from 2030, which were more like a handgun and a machine gun and a shotgun right. and things like that. More, more wow. typical weapons. One of them is a chain gun, like a, you know, Gatling okay. gun. Yep. Okay. So I get to the final duel with Mishima and I'm thinking, okay, finally it'll be the chance to, we'll have a sword fight. Cause that's what this has all been leading up to. Like it's the name of the game. Big sword. Hours of this game. Jumping yeah. through different time periods. <laughs> yeah. The game is called Sword, Big Sword. Yeah. Yeah. He's got one, we both got one. Yeah. And he comes attacking me with it. This is one of the time, the few times I actually died because the sword fighting was terrible. It didn't work. Okay. Like our swords right. didn't, it wasn't like clink, clink, clink. You know, it was just like yeah. he stabbed me a few times. Right, like, right, okay, right. fuck this. Pull out the Gatling gun, shoot him about five <laughs> times and he was dead. This is really? the boss of the game. Oh, you Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was thinking, yeah. is this going to be like a twist where he's going to come back more powerful? Yeah. No, he's dead on the floor. Oh, yeah. Credits roll. Oh, no. <laughs> you think the credits start, but no. Uh -oh. There's one okay. more thing. They realize, well, we okay. can't be trapped in 2030. So you and Mikiko oh, yeah. and Superfly, this is all a cutscene, so you don't actually have to do okay. anything. But you go into the, the, right. the heart of this base, and mm -hmm. there's, there's a nuclear reactor, and the idea is you're going to put the sword in and... Mag magically it's going to be charged up of course <laughs> nothing nothing else is going to happen yeah we heard that that's what uh, yeah that's what you can do with nuclear reactors in our chernobyl episodes you can charge right, magical exactly. swords. can charge up swords so here's the big twist the second big mm -hmm. twist or third big twist i don't know yeah. when you put the sword in you yeah. cut you're still in cutscene mode so you're not actually doing anything you start talking to right. superfly right. about wow it's going to be great to go back to our time period mm -hmm. and you know because you killed Mishima, the second Daikatana disappeared, just like in Back to right. the Future. Um, right. yeah. You know, it doesn't didn't actually exist yeah. anymore. So, mm. just as you're having this chat, Mikiko stabs Superfly with the with the blade of the Daikatana. What? She's what? a traitor. The whole time you've right. been saving her ass this through this whole game. You saved her at the beginning. You have to go through ancient Greece, ancient Norway, or medieval <laughs> Norway, and Alcatraz, oh, and then she kills your best friend, oh. and she tries to kill you. Yeah, she reveals <laughs> that in fact her family's and Mishima's they were both bad. Even though at the beginning, oh. it's told to you that her family, her right. clan or whatever in feudal Japan, the legacy generations later, right, they were just as evil. She's like, no, no, you you shouldn't have believed my father. Okay. Um, we're just as bad as, wow. as Mishima, so I'm going to take the sword, and I'm going to go back in time and, and do it my own way. And she's basically right. saying, you know, setting up a sequel or something, I, I figured. Right. Until she yeah. starts attacking right. you, and I pulled right. out a, my Gatling gun again and killed her. <laughs> the, same, the same ending. Like, no difference. Nothing cool. They Darth Mauled it. Yeah. They set up this, like, potentially compelling villain. Killed her instantly. Yeah. Killed her instantly. <laughs> Whoosh. Oh, God. 
And now here's the final ending, okay? Okay. Cutscene. It's all cutscenes from here. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're beside yourself. Your, your friend's dead. The woman you mm-hmm. thought was also your friend is now dead too. Mm-hmm. Right. And it goes to a cutscene mode where you're like, but I've got to do something to set things right. And then it cuts to Superfly and Mikiko are alive again. Okay. They're talking to a scientist, a Japanese scientist, about right. how they yeah. were able to cure some plague, some virus, and the world's doing so well now. And yeah. it's too bad these legends of this Daikatana will never never amount to anything. Mm. Maybe it was all a myth. Right. Then it cuts to you as hero, basically pulling a Yoda. <laughs> like you're in a swamp, yeah. in isolation, meditating yeah. in a little hut. And the Daikatana is like encased in this rock thing that, you know, the idea that you're right. hiding it forever so nobody right. can ever yeah. do it and you're just going to guard the sword <laughs> for the rest of time. Wow. And that's how the game ends. Wow. <laughs> Spoiler for anyone who would have ever thought well, to play this. Um, no, I think uh, I think this is why. <laughs> I think that's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale. Don't play this game. Also, I, <laughs> I realized uh, what I asked you to do as you were talking about this game. <laughs> so thanks for doing that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> i can't believe i finished so, the game really i was yeah. there's a moment there where i thought like this is not worth it right the one thing i would say you know like when you kill these enemies not mm-hmm. only are they super easy to kill but they would blow up into like chunks of meat kind of like chunks right. of bone and stuff and it was supposed yeah, yeah, to yeah. i guess it was supposed yeah. to be gory but it just looked so okay. stupid it looks so comical. <laughs> like, it's like, a, a, yeah, okay, I guess these future weapons might blow a person into chunks, but it's like, mm-hmm. right. it's so stupid looking. It yeah, looks so bad. Oh, the whole God. game looks bad. And there was supposed to be, I guess, they had this idea that it would be kind of, along with the, the story, you know, this kind of, you know, because as I said, the game is really long with all these yeah. time periods you hop through. So there's a lot yeah. of ambition there that was like, yeah, this could have potentially been a cool idea. Yeah. And they went as far as including like a level up option to like okay. skill yeah. up your guy yeah. so you can be yeah. more heavier attack or faster yeah, yeah, yeah. or more agile or whatever. Yeah. But it's never explained how it works. It's never on screen to show you how many, like it is on screen, but it doesn't tell you how you're accumulating the points, skill points or whatever to invest in this thing. So right. to my, as far as I could tell, it wasn't making a difference to the gameplay at all. Right. Yeah. So I would say, you know, the level of ambition here was far beyond what they could have pulled off. The fact that they jumped from one engine to the other. Yeah. I'm sure that delayed, if it had just come out when it was supposed to, maybe it would have been more of a moderate success. It really sounds like the kind of game made by a company that is full of creative people and not so many business people. Right. Yeah, exactly. You need a bit of that structure, right? Like Lee and I have talked about this before in another context, but limiting yourself is the mother of creativity and actually doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's no limits. Okay, then this game is not... Perfect example of why no limits will be the death of whatever you're working on. Exactly. Yeah, give yourself some limits. (laughs) Thanks for that breakdown and thanks for playing that game, Andy. I can't wait. I can't wait to come up with the next thing to subject you to. I've already have some, I already have some ideas. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> like, I won't forget it because it was so bad. That's that's the thing. All right. Well, there you go. I won't remember it because I liked it. I'll, I won't be able yeah. to forget it because it was so bad. 
and I'll delete it from my computer yeah. immediately after this. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never be able to forget yeah. it. So I'll just wrap up and then we can sure. go to our music. I remember one of the websites I used to visit called Firing Squad posted a review for the game when it came out. They did not review it favorably. Mm. And they actually ended the review with a picture of the disc after they microwaved it. So <laughs> that's kind of reflective of what the reception of the game was like. Right. So the PC version of Daikatana got an average score of 54% from all of its reviews. Uh-huh. PC version, you might be asking yourself. Yeah. There was actually an N64 port. Yeah. A Nintendo 64 port oh, that wow. came out and was somehow worse in every way and got a 42% from like all the reviews. <laughs> Yeah. The top-down RPG version released for the Game Boy Color did okay, though. Mm. Yeah, there was actually a top-down version released for the Game Boy Color. But we don't have time to talk about everything. Wow. Yeah. No. Also, there's not that much to say. John Romero just commissioned it, and it turned out it did okay. Mm. Not, like, well, but it wasn't as awful as the other. In the years following its release, Daikatana routinely showed up on... It, it still shows up on lists of worst games of all time, biggest gaming right. disappointments. Sounds like, from what Andy told us, that's pretty much warranted across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, following Daikatana's <laughs> release, Ion Storm kept chugging along for a while. So they released a game called Anachronox in 2001, which is another time traveling RPG. Mm-hmm. They released Deus Ex Invisible War, which was the first sequel to Deus Ex. And it was, I played it, it was not great. And then they released uh, Thief Deadly Shadows, which was a sequel to the Thief games after the original developer went out of business. Shortly after the release of Anachronox, Romero left Ion Storm. And the ridiculously mm-hmm. overpriced Dallas Penthouse office closed in 2001. <laughs> the Austin office closed shortly after releasing Thief Deadly Shadows in 2005, I think that was. Thus ended the dream and creativity fueled John Romero roller coaster that was derailed and driven into the ground by Daikatana. <laughs> so John Romero didn't stop making games. He founded Monkey Stone Games with some of the Ion Storm crew, including Stevie Case, uh-huh. who'd been dating for a while. Uh, they had developed mobile games for various pocket PC products, including the N-Gage, which I think might be its own disaster that we'll get to in the future. Okay. I don't know if you remember the N-Gage. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. Uh, he went on to form a few companies and announce a few games throughout the 2000s, cl- including a, quote, visceral shooter that harkens back to classic FPS games that he announced in 2016. Uh-huh. And I wonder if knowing John Romero's luck at this point, he announced it like right around the time that he was sitting down to play Doom 2016, <laughs> just realizing like, oh, this exists already. Oh, that's what visceral <laughs> means. <laughs> Maybe most interestingly for fans of the work that made John Romero, John Romero, in 2019, he released a Megawad, which is kind of like an add-on for the original Doom. That's basically a brand new episode, mm. like a, se- a direct right. sequel to the game. Oh, yeah, sure. I haven't played it yet, but I can tell you that, unfortunately, Romero's legacy has followed him around throughout the years because he announced it for, like, a certain time in 2018, I think, and then it got delayed. And, you know, in my mind, unfortunately, I was like, well, of course it did. (laughs) So that's kind of going to follow him around forever. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the take home from this story is the importance of, like we talked about, structure to creativity. Design is law as a guiding philosophy can't really stand on its own. You need someone steering the ship. Yeah. And maybe another way to put that is the John Romero's are important, but so are the John Carmack's Uh that we talked about at id Software. You kind of need the, okay, yeah, no, that's, that's cool. How about we finish this first (laughs) and then we try that other thing? (laughs) Yep. So many examples of that. And that's a philosophy. I know that the three of us have talked about that a lot in the context of recording albums. It's like, yeah, we yeah, sure. just, you know, don't, don't hamper creativity, but stay on point as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Rain it in. Yeah. All right. So that's the story of Daikatana. Wow. 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 
before we wrap it up, you guys got any music to go with that? Andy, you want to go first? Guests Guests first. first. Sure. Thanks. (laughs) Um, I picked the song Self Obsessed and Sexy by Sonic Youth from their 1994 album, Experimental Jet Set Trash and No Star. Nice. The, I mean, title and some of the, the lyrics, you know, seem to be about somebody who is uh, full of themselves, kind of like a perhaps a John Romero's ego kind of situation. Um, yeah. But also because it came out in the kind of early to mid 90s when we were talking about, you know, a lot of these games like Doom yeah. and Quake and, and, you know, the games that we would have played as kids. And I was, you know, especially in the later 90s, I was listening to Tony some so. Nice. Lee, you got one? Yeah. So um, you'd mentioned, like, I had no idea what this episode was going to be about. Mm-hmm. You just said something 90s video gaming. Yeah. Now, for me, like, you guys are in your late 30s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I'm uh, I'm going to turn 44 this year, Whoa. so I'm a little bit older. So the 90s, I actually, that was literally the decade I did the least amount of gaming. Oh, okay. So the 80s, I had the Atari and the NES. Right. Yeah. And by 1990, I started playing music and just sort of refocusing whatever. By the end of the 90s, my brother got a PlayStation and I was like, holy shit, video games are getting good. (laughs) So I started playing Resident Evil. By 2002, I got an Xbox. So 90s was kind of nebulous for me, but I did have a few things here and there. One being, as I said earlier, we had a shitty little PC, like a Windows 3.1, and we had Doom 2. Nice. So I would play Doom mm-hmm. 2 yep. terribly. <laughs> like, I don't even think... Keyboard? I knew how to... Like, yeah, keyboard. Yep. But, I mean, I didn't even know how to, like, strafe side to side. Right, right, right. So, inevitably, I would just IDDQD and yeah. God Mode and all that shit. Yep, but yep, yep. I would always sort of... Because we had these shitty little computer speakers. Couldn't hear much. I would soundtrack it myself. So, one album, I thought, went with it perfectly. It's The band is called Blind Idiot God. And the album is called Cyclotron. It came out in 1992. Okay. And the first song, I picked the first song. It's called 747. <laughs> and they play this insane sort of hybrid of heavy metal, dub reggae, and just just weird experimental yeah. band. It's all instrumental um, with these crazy guitar antics and right. stuff. But it's just, I thought at the time, and I still believe, it's just a perfect soundtrack to destroying demons. And, yeah. You know, goes with it nicely awesome actually interesting what did you pick peter I, i've got like a similar story where i used to play the original doom and i also had like crappy pc speakers so i would have like i would set up a boom box on top of my like yeah. 386 or whatever those that we were playing that i was using mm-hmm. to play but for me that's around the, that's before i got into any like heavy quote-unquote guitar-based music so for yeah. like my the connection in my mind is listening to dance mix 94 on cassette and playing the original doom. <laughs> what a combination. <laughs> I know it's such a weird, such a weird memory, but now like, honestly, if I want just like a feel good time, I'll play the original doom and listen to dance mix 94. And it's just like <laughs> such a, such like a happy place. Anyway, but what I, the, the song that I picked, so the band is actually one that I haven't talked about yet, but it's a band that factored like I used to listen to them a lot and maybe less. So now it's the bands came FDM. They're like yeah. one of the seminal or a very early sort of industrial band kind of, they did a lot to maybe propagate the genre. Yeah. Right. 
The album that I picked is Adios from 1999, and the song is Adios, right. the first track. The reason that I picked it is it's the song that, come, that I think of most often when I remember playing the original Quake deathmatch in my buddy's basement, usually against bots. So, and I think mm-hmm. eventually a nuclear norm joined us in this, and we ended up playing Quake Three for a long time. Okay. But in 1999, we'd always like go to my friend's basement, play Quake, and listen to a various various music. A lot of times, it was like KMFDM and this album in particular. Uh-huh. The other thing that I remember about this album is at that point it was like right towards the end of high school, and there's this cool feeling. At least it was cool for me at the time because in high school I was very protective of the music that I listened to, and it's a very like much like an identifying feature, and I think maybe that's the case for yeah. a lot of people sure, sure so at the time this album by this band was something that i knew nobody else that i knew was listening to you know what i mean so i'd like yeah you know i'd be walking around like walking home or walking around the halls listening to music and i knew that what i was listening to nobody like most of the people probably didn't know that they existed and i was like this cool right. sort of thing and anyway that's that's why that came to mind it's like this this it's empowering exactly it's kind of yeah weirdly empire empowering in a very high school way yeah exactly sweet so if you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend to listen. And when you tell that friend to listen, don't make it like a three-year-long development that ultimately never comes out. Just, you know, find someone and say, listen to this as a disaster. That would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the next best thing you can do is to subscribe if you haven't already and leave a rating or review. I think Apple Podcasts is still the best place to do that to help us get noticed and, you know, more the merrier. Uh, if you want to follow us on social medias at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. We also have a patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod with tons of bonus content, and you can help us make even more. And thanks to Andy for joining us. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to be more of a thing now, so I'm going to think of, think up of <laughs> more ways to, <laughs> more ways to torture, torture. I mean, yeah. more things for you to try. Sure. <laughs> we already have a few ideas. Now that I've kind of opened the door on video games, there's a bunch that I can think of. So there's at least more video games coming your way in the future <laughs> can't wait and check out trial and error on youtube andy and lee's uh show on youtube and and, and our other buddy mike they put that together it's hilarious and uh, they try try if, crazy foods and stuff if you want if you want to see lee and andy in person trying crazy foods yeah trial and error on on youtube oh and next time next time we're going to be getting chilly in the canadian north courtesy of a special guest who i do yeah <laughs> another special guest so thanks for tuning in lee anything to add no that's enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was a long one thanks for joining us and we'll see you in the next disaster Bye. Bye. bye